our study through respectable sins as Pastor Dave and um, Autumn have given birth to Anne Marie. So we are very excited for them as they stay home together and observe the Sabbath day with a new life under their roof. And so we rejoice with them in that. But uh, this morning, um, as we take a break from respectable sins, our sermon text will be Psalm 73. Uh, This psalm was penned by Asaph, um, who was a very gifted individual. He penned 12 psalms. And to give a bit of uh, insight as to who Asaph was, um, he was a Levite who was assigned by King David to be the chief musician. And his role was to lead the people of Israel in singing before the Ark of the Covenant and the portable tabernacle. And presumably he continued in that role after King David's son Solomon built the fixed temple in Jerusalem. Along with Asaph, there were other Levites chosen by King David to assist uh, the choir as they worship God. But Asaph was the chief musician, and in penning this psalm, he, he pens what is undoubtedly an extremely honest psalm. And calling this an honest psalm, I do not mean that the others are not honest, nor am I calling other portions of Scripture untrue. The psalms, along with the whole of God's Word, are inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed by God, and as the Word of God, it is truth. But what I mean in calling this an honest psalm is that within it, we get a glimpse into the heart of a man and the difficulty of the Christian life as it addresses the hard realities that Christians must experience. And Christians may often put on a front, pretending that their lives are grand, that everything is always fine. Um, in Pastor Dave's sermon a, a few weeks ago or a month ago, however long it was, on anxiety, um, he mentioned the evangelical happy face, and that kind of stuck with me in my mind. Um, often, rather than admitting we are in a valley of difficulty, we may be guilty of acting as though all is well in our lives, that we are always on top of the mountain, as it were, pretending that our zeal for God and our faith in him is perpetually immutable, stable, never having to wrestle with life, nor confessing that there are questions that plague our minds tempting us to doubt the goodness of God. But in reality, the Christian life isn't an easy thing. There are times in life when we waver in our faith, when we suffer. The thought will inevitably come into our minds to doubt God's power, wisdom, goodness, and kindness towards us. And when we see the wicked living lives that are more extravagant or easier than our own, we can't help but ask why. Why does God give these temporal gifts to the wicked? And why does he seem to be neglecting me, though I myself am a child of God? And earlier I made mention of Asaph's title as the chief musician because I think it's a significant title for us. Because not only do Christians generally pretend that everything is fine, but there is a presupposition imposed upon ministers today as well as if they are immune to these kinds of Christian struggles as if they do not have the same sinful thoughts, inclinations, or doubts as those who are not ministers, but that is simply not so. Every person is born into sin with a sinful nature and a heart bent towards sin, and even after they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they must resist the temptations of the flesh and wrestle with these questions to doubt the goodness of God. Every man and woman is in desperate need of the grace and mercy of God, lest they fall And even men like Asaph, the chief musician, who I, by the way, resonate with as one who leads the people of God in singing each week. And in this honest psalm, again, we are given a glimpse in the heart of a man who loved God, who led God's people in singing praises to God, but who himself had doubted God's goodness and almost fallen away from the faith. And so if Asaph, who is a man of good understanding, who loves the Lord, is tempted to despise God and his dispensing of temporal blessings, then it is certain that all men and women may be tempted to the same. So maybe there are some here this morning who can relate to Asaph and notice the wicked prosper and are tempted to fall away. And if that is the case, my prayer is that this sermon will be a comfort to you and like Asaph, your eyes would be reoriented to consider the goodness and mercy our God bestows upon all who trust in him. So with that said, 
Would you please stand for the reading of the infallible word of God? Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for inspiring this honest psalm that deals with us honestly in our thoughts. Lord, we ask that you would teach us and show us the error of our ways, just as Asaph had learned the error of his ways. As we come here this morning, if we are envious of the wicked, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and show us something more beautiful to behold, that we might behold Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins. Apply this word to our hearts this morning. And as we read earlier, may we listen to Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. In verse 1, Asaph begins confessing what he knows to be true. He says, truly, God is good to Israel. He knows this is true based not only on experience, but also his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures available to him at his time, whereby he reads the very word of God spoken by the prophets, which proclaims God's faithfulness to Israel and his working in redemptive history to preserve Israel that they might conquer their enemies And through them bring forth the Messiah. And God's word leads him to embrace this beautiful, simple truth. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, to those who are pure in heart, uh, this does not refer to those who have attained sinless perfection. We know that sinless perfection is not a thing 
on this side of heaven. <clears throat> uh, King Solomon, who ruled over Asaph, makes this known in Ecclesiastes chapter 720. He writes, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So to be pure of heart does not refer to one who never sins. Rather, those who are pure of heart refer to those who belong to Israel by faith. Spiritual Israel, pure Israel, the Israel that belongs to God. They love God, they strive to obey Him, and ultimately, true Israel trusts in His promises. And Asaph says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who belong to God by faith. But what he knows to be true, and as he confesses in the first verse, seems to be at odds with what he sees. As he surveys the world, he sees the wicked prospering. He sees the unbelieving people around him, and it appears that the opposite is true, that God is good to the wicked rather than to the righteous. And in verse 2, as he begins to wrestle with this tension that the wicked appear to be doing better than, the, better than the righteous, he confesses his sin, that his feet had nearly, had nearly slipped out from under him. What is he saying in his feet slipping? He's confessing that he had nearly lost his faith. Um, the imagery Asaph brings to our minds is that of someone who's been walking on a path with a destination in mind, marching toward the goal of heaven to dwell with God. And in this, I can't help but thinking of the imagery in Pilgrim's Progress, which I know our brother Wyatt loves so much. He loves that book. Uh, where a Christian is on his path, headed to the celestial city, and he begins to rush hastily, without being careful as to where he's going, and suddenly his foot slips out from under him and he stumbles and falls into the swamp of despair. And while Asaph confesses that he had not fallen, he recognizes that he almost had and how terrible a thing it would be for him to lose his footing and forsake the God who had been so good to him. So in what way did his feet nearly slip out from under him? What caused this? Well, verse 3, he tells us, He was envious of the wicked. What does it mean to be envious? Well, it's very similar to being covetous, and I think largely we can understand the two as being synonymous with, with, with one another. But I do want to bring this to your minds with the hope of exposing some underlying sin that you may not be aware that you have. And because you don't know about it, you are not watching for it. Um, to covet is to have a sinful desire for someone or something that God has not given to you. And to covet ultimately is to accuse God of being unwise and unjust in his distribution of temporal blessings to those around us and to yourself. So to covet is to raise your fist against God with discontent for not giving you the things that you believe you deserve and it's idolatrous. Paul always links the two together or always, I know he does often in the epistles. Coveting is a form of idolatry. But to be envious while similar is not so much a sinful desire for the possessions that belong to others. Rather, it can purely be a questioning of God's providence. It's not being uh, discontent with the things that you have been given, but it's questioning God's providence and what he's just given to others. So it would be something like this. I don't believe that I deserve this thing. I don't really want this thing. But why do those people of all people have that? Why did God give that to them? And that is a form of, of envy. For transparency, every commentary I've read sees envy here as being interpreted as coveting, which I do believe Asaph is experiencing. But as I preach this sermon, I, I want you to keep that thought in the back of your head. Do you envy in this way? Are there people around you who have things that you don't necessarily want, but you just don't think that they should have it? And if you do so, you are sinning against God who has said it is good that they have this thing, and you are not God. We ought not accuse God of being unjust in his providence. So Asaph, by the sin in his own heart, is provoked to envy. And he's questioning God. If God is good, then why do his enemies possess so much more seemingly to their benefit, while those who belong to God seem to be doing so poorly in life? So in what ways do the wicked prosper? Uh, there are many ways noted in the psalm, but I, there are three primary ways that we will consider this morning. Uh, and it is uh, their health, their wealth, and their overall 
ease of life or their lack of trouble. Notice these are the same things tempted Adam and Eve. Wealth, health, lack of trouble. As we consider these three ways, um, I don't believe Asaph is speaking absolutes here as if every single unbeliever has unlimited access to all these things. But I do think it's fair to say that Asaph had undoubtedly seen a good number of wicked prospering in this way, just as we do today, while at the same time seeing a good number of righteous in distress. And so the first way we will consider the prosperity of the wicked is in their health. This is what we see in verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. No pangs until death. That is to say, they do not have or experience bodily anguish. They are not overcome with the burden of terrible diseases or sickness, even up to the day of their death. They never seem to suffer any serious medical conditions. And when death does come, as death inevitably comes to all people, the wicked do not suffer painful deaths. It comes easily to them. Maybe Asaph said to himself at one point, point, surely the wicked will get what they deserve. Surely, even as they accrue all these possessions and live these prideful, vain, dishonest lives, loftily threatening oppression upon others, the Lord will bring them to a terrible death. But it never happens. It doesn't happen to them. It seems as if they have been victorious in this life, escaping the judgment of God. Maybe you know those who live according to the passions of the flesh, but when sickness comes, they have the money or resources to get the help they need, which serves to mitigate their suffering. So even in their sickness, they still do quite well. All the while, they are quite evil people. Dr. David Murray uh, says, and paraphrasing Matthew Henry, he says, the wicked live like devils and they die like lambs. And this is what Asaph sees. And you may see the same things Asaph had seen regarding the good health of the wicked. You may ask yourself, why has the Lord stricken me with this disease, this illness, and this bodily ailment that will plague me for all my days while this unbelieving individual who has never had nor desired a single, a single thight wrought about God, why have they never so much as broken a bone? Christians suffer in many different ways, and they would do better with the things that God has given to them if they had them, but God gives them to the wicked instead. Some Christians may be mute. If they could speak, they would use their lips to praise God in heaven, yet God has shut their mouths. And all the while, God has granted wicked men the ability to, wicked men and women, the ability to use their tongues freely, and with them they curse God and curse his people. Maybe you see wicked people, and God has given them fertility. And they abuse it or don't appreciate it. They have an abundance of children out of wedlock. Fathers do not stand by their children and mothers abandon their children. There are people who go out and and party and, and live wicked lifestyles. They dishonor their bodies and as a result they have many children with many different people. But you who have committed yourself to a spouse in marriage aiming to bring honor to God. have not been able to conceive after years of trying. Why does God give the children to the promiscuous and deny these gifts from his own children? Maybe you've been tempted to ask yourself, is God truly good to Israel? Is God good to me? Or is he good to the wicked? Second way they prosper is in their wealth. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Asaph sees the wicked enjoying a comfortable life on earth, always increasing in wealth. How many wicked people do you know who seem to have all the money they could ever desire? They lay their heads down their pillows each night without a single financial concern for the morning except for what trinket they aim to, pur- to purchase the next day in order to gain the smiles or approval of men or fulfill their own lustful appetites. They do not have to be as tight and rigid with their budget as you do. 
They do not have to be as careful with their money, ensuring they have enough for their upcoming mortgage payment. They may even be looking for a bigger house that will cost them more money, but it's an investment that comes rather easily to them. They are not tempted to worry about how they will be able to afford groceries the next week. If their car breaks down, they have enough money to fix it. And if it costs too much money to fix it, more than the car is worth, they'll just buy a brand new vehicle. And while they are wicked people who despise God, they have all these things. Yet you who love God are not able to afford the luxuries of the wealth or even the bare necessities of life. You have to take great care and be intentional with every dime you have in your possession just to make ends meet. In your heart, you may envy these people just as Asaph had, saying to yourself, why does God seem to care for those who hate him and neglect his own? When I was thinking of the wicked, uh, prosperous in the world, I couldn't help but think of um, Jeffrey Epstein. I think it's a prominent example. Why did such a wicked man as Epstein get many properties and even his own island? Why did God make Epstein worth five hundred and eighty million dollars even though he's a cruel man who preyed upon the weak and vulnerable why did god give him so much money which only enabled him to abuse image bearers of god while your average baptist pastor makes between thirty thousand and sixty five thousand dollars a year i'm not saying that as me i'm not on payroll here but i'm saying that's an example of the wicked who prosper really really well Third way, they prosper. They are not in trouble. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. There are different ways we can look at this word trouble. It can be rendered to toil, labor, having misery or pain. But ultimately it shows just how far reaching their prosperity goes. Asaph had seen that the wicked are just not in trouble as other men are. They do not have to take up the curse of the fall with as much difficulty as the faithful in Asaph's day. And this reality stands before us today, even in our work. There are many Christians who labor hard. They work long days and they eat by the sweat of their brow. While a number of unrighteous have attained very comfortable jobs, while you work harder, you make less money than they do discontentment i have a personal experience this whenever i did landscaping years and years ago we took care of some beautiful properties um, and i'm out there busting my hind in 12 14 hours a day up to six days a week and um, it's back-breaking work and i'm working for beautiful properties and it seems like there's specific houses every time you're there they're always home they're not they're having time with their family and i know for sure some of them were cheats liars not faithful in their marriages and that's an easy thought to creep in my mind is why do they have all that yet here i am a a christian who loves god and here i am just under all this difficulty and if you are a christian in a um, nation that hates christianity you have basically resigned yourself to be poor there are nations you live in if you are a christian you do not embrace the doctrine of the state you are just going to be poor for the rest of your life while those who hate god do very very well Other ways that Christians can be stricken in the way that wicked are not is we are struck by the rod of God's discipline. And this applies to all Christians everywhere, whether they have easy labor or strenuous labor. We are stricken with the God, the rod of God's discipline. And we know that God disciplines those whom he loves. And what this does is it makes us work honestly and be considerate of all that we say, think, and do in the public square while the wicked do not. And they take advantage of it. There are those who lie about the time work to their employers. And they make more money with less work. You're honest. So in your honesty, you would make less money. There are those who would lie on tax forms. And in turn, they make more money. And they have an easier life. Overall, it seems that the wicked take advantage of sin to use loopholes to be better off. And Christians who are under the rod of God's discipline, our consciences cannot bear And we must live honest lives, even if it means it is more difficult for us. Christians are stricken in a different way, in a way that the wicked are not. And being as the wicked have been given all these things, given wealth, health, and lives apart from trouble, they become haughty, prideful, and arrogant. This is what we see in verse 6. Therefore, 
pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They are puffed up with pride, denying the God who has given them good gifts by believing it's by their own strength and by their own strivings. They have accrued material wealth. They don't love God. They forget that he exists, and they believe all they have comes by their own work. And their pride is like an ornament around their necks. It's the most precious thing they have. More than anything they could ever own, it's their pride placed around their necks for all to see. And due to their pride, because they have managed to get by so easily in life, they oppress others and abuse those beneath them and believe they can escape any form of punishment. There is violence in their speech. They have no fear that God will come to them in judgment. Asaph says, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They don't care. They don't care. In their arrogance, they deny God's subsistence. They use the very breath God has given given them and the minds given to them to blaspheme God, to rail against their maker and abuse fellow image bearers of God. They use their whole person and all they have to injure the people of God. And not only do they seem to get away with it, but they seem to be the better for it. There are many examples today of the wicked using tongues as rudders for violence against the people of God. Again, we know this firsthand with our brother, Dr. Nick Merriweather, who would not bend on his faith and so is possibly at risk of losing his job. And beyond that, receive threats, very terrible things said against our brother and sister here. Their tongue struts through the earth as they rail against God and his people. We know there are many accounts of bakers and Oregon and Colorado, California getting fined because they will not bend the knee to the state under the guise of uh, acceptance to all religions and races, ethnicities, and orientations while all the time the state is against their religion and they lose funding, they lose businesses, they lose people who sponsor them, and they have to close down their shops because the world and the culture hates God. And they are not afraid of discipline because the world is on their side. Their tongue struts through the earth and they threaten, loftily threaten oppression on the people of God. In light of these three things, we can sum up um, the thoughts of Asaph and put it in our own own ways of envying those around us. They have a nice house, referring to the wicked. I don't. Their family is united. Mine is broken. Their family loves one another. Mine has betrayed me. They have a car. I don't. They are healthy. I'm not. Their parents are still able-bodied, and my parents are not in good health. They don't seem to be any financial hardships or troubles, but I have many difficulties with my finances. They have an abundance of friends, and that just keeps on growing. My friends have abandoned me. They have healthy children. Mine are sick. They have children. I don't. And in lamenting in verse 13, Asaph says, All in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to his religious practices. But these aren't merely religious practices it's done with a pure heart as a levite he would certainly wash his hands but he confesses i have a pure heart surely it's all been in vain that i have believed in the god of israel offering sacrifices on the altar and leading his people and singing for even the heathen hates god and yet they seem to be better off as for me i'm distressed they oppress the people of god they have more power than we do and i serve a good god but what's the use What's the point? If you've endured hardship here, have you ever wondered, what's the use? Have you thought to yourself, I belong to a Reformed congregation. We adhere to the regulative principle of worship. We sing psalms, we sing hymns, and we sing psalms. How many churches sing psalms around here? We sing psalms. Surely God would be impressed with that. We have a robust liturgy. We take the Lord's Supper every week. 
I do all these things. Where is my prosperity? But again, more than that, not just looking at the external forms of religion, you genuinely love God and you genuinely have saving faith. The things you do are not mere rigid religious rituals to gain favor with God. You say to yourself, I have laid hold of Christ with faith and I truly love God. And truly, with sincerity, you repent of your sins daily, and you aim to live by God's word, and yet the wicked have, and I do not. And Asaph says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It seemed to be a wearisome task to reconcile this tension between the suffering of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked. But in 17, there is a shift, and it's a shift in the entire psalm, and it's a glorious shift, and it's a shift as Asaph's mind is reoriented and brought from a sinful, worldly way of thinking to a right and sober way of thinking. What did Asaph see when he went into the sanctuary of God? Remember, Asaph was a Levite, and he lived under the old covenant sacrificial system. So when he would go into the temple... If you would go with me into the temple, if, 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 as it were, uh, first he would see is the bronze altar of sacrifice. And this object was prominently displayed in the temple so that not a soul could enter without seeing it there. This is where they would offer animal sacrifices daily on the four corners of the altar were horns that would be covered with blood when priests were consecrated and on the annual day of atonement. So Asaph would have walked the tabernacle. And he would have seen animals being slaughtered and burned on the altar, burning flesh and blood. Beyond the altar, Asaph would have seen the bronze water basins for ceremonial cleansing for the priest. Notice he says, well, surely I've washed my hands in vain. And the priest would wash themselves before entering into the temple, symbolizing their purity, before entering the special presence of a pure and holy God. And past the sacrificial altar and the water basins were the doors which made the division between the outer court and the holy place. And engraved on the doors that led to the holy place were cherubim and trees, which remind the Israelites of the Garden of Eden. Remember, the temple was like the garden. God, after the fall, God stationed two cherubim on the east side of the garden to keep watch over the entry. And the priests, after the ritual washings and the basins, would walk past the cherubim on the sides of the doors, walking westward into the temple as if they were walking westward back into Eden, where the presence of God was before the fall. And when the priest would go in, he would have the breastplate with the 12 stones on it, symbolizing the tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's as if the priest would go before God on the behalf of the 12 tribes of Israel. There is much that he would have seen. I do not have time to get into all that he would have seen. But those are some things I wanted to note. And along with that, he would have heard the scriptures preached. He would have heard the Psalms sung to him. And all of this would have reminded him that his way of thinking was wrong. So what do all these things teach Asaph when he goes into the sanctuary of God? It teaches him that God is holy and he is not. All this imagery, along with the preaching of God's word, caused Asaph to see, thing, see things rightly. And it is this, that he is actually no better than the wicked in this world. That in order for him to have communion with God, he must come on God's terms. He must be washed clean. There must be blood sacrifice for the purification of sins. He must have a high priest to go in the temple on his behalf and intercede for him. And when Asaph comes to the sanctuary of God, he mourns his sin. He confesses that he was like a beast towards God. He recognizes how wicked his sin is and how his sin is actually worse than the sins of the wicked. Because the wicked are blind. They're ignorant. They just do. They don't know any better. But Asaph, his eyes are opened. He knows. He knows. And yet here he is, envying the wicked. 
He's like the people of Israel that grumbled against God and Moses saying, we were better off being slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt than wandering in this wilderness. That is a heinous sin. Do we ever ask that or do we ever desire that same thing? Our eyes have been opened. We've been delivered from slavery. But we think, man, if I could just live like the wicked, it'd be so much easier. Again, perish the thought that we would ever think that way. When Asaph envies the wicked, he acts like the Israelites who grumble. The Israelites or the wicked sin against God's law. God's law. But when we sin, we sin as those who belong to him, who are near to him, who know how we ought to think. And we sin against his law. We sin against his grace. When we desire to live like the wicked, we raise our fist against the grace and mercy of God and say that we are better off without it. We are better off without the grace and mercy of God. I'd rather live like the wicked. And when we, <clears throat> and what we have is so much better than what Asaph had. All he had were types and shadows of the true substance who was to come, which we now have in Christ. We don't need priests to go stand daily in service, offering sacrifices to God. We have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who poured out his own blood on his own altar of the cross. And he did it one time for all sins. And the temple curtain has been torn from top down, showing that we have been given full access to God through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. We don't have to go to the bronze basins to be filled with water, that are filled with water for purification. We go to the source of water, the true and lasting living water, who is Christ. And in looking to Christ and drinking from that fount, we are washed in his blood. What we have now is so much better than what Asaph had in his day. He was given the promise of the Messiah to come, but under the new covenant, we have the already Messiah who has come and freely offered himself and given himself to us. So when Asaph goes to the sanctuary of God, he thinks rightly about the world and what he sees in it. He thinks rightly about himself, who belongs to God and has peace and communion with God. But in discerning that, he sees on the flip side, the wicked who do not have those things he sees that he is privileged in his position as one who belongs to the God of Israel and it's not by his own work he didn't do it but God made him a Levite he didn't make himself born a Levite and when he sees this all the worldly pleasures are suddenly counted as nothing to him and remembers the worldly enjoyments are merely vanity and this is what he cries out in verse 25 whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. This is evidence of Asaph's heart change wrought by God's grace when met, when he met a holy God and was reminded that he is recipient, recipient of God's grace. The man who previously envied the wicked and all they had now says, there's nothing I desire on earth besides the Lord. For God has given me what the world cannot. And he has given me the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And not only does he see that the world worldly enjoyments are vanity, but he sees that the wicked are in slippery places. The wicked are in a very slippery place. When Asaph goes to the sanctuary of God, he sees God has surely placed the wicked in slippery places. All Consider this, all that the wicked have will one day be used against them in judgment. God has given them the greatest visible evidences of his goodness to people on earth. He's given them wealth. He's given them prosperity. He's given them peaceful lives. And yet they detest the one who has given those things to them. They hate God they will be held accountable for the much that God has given to them and the little thanks they gave to him. And may we consider that as people who grew up here in the West who have much. Do we give thanks to God as we ought? We ought to give God thanks. We have way more than we deserve. 
the more you have been given, the more thanks is due to God, and they have been given much. And what a terrifying day it will be for the wicked when they stand before God and give an account of the abuse of all the things that he has given to them because they don't use it for God's glory. They use it for their own. They don't use it for God's glory. They use it for their own. The wicked have been placed in slippery places, and they don't know it. The wicked are so arrogant, so prideful, so sure of their footing, so confident in themselves, one day they will suddenly be brought to a quick and humiliating end. They are like the confident, blindly running a race, running headlong off a cliff, not knowing of their folly until their last confident push off the ledge. And they go to put their next foot down, and the ground's not there. And off they go into destruction eternally. So prideful, so confident, but they cannot depend upon tomorrow. So he says in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The life the prospering wicked have been given is as good as it gets for them. This life is as good as it gets for them, but for the Christian, this is as bad as life gets for us. There is eternal enjoyment to come. All these things are fleeting. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It must be noted, when Asaph envies the wicked, he is only seeing what is visible. He's only seeing what appears to be. But as uh, Charnock notes, can it really be well with those who do not know God? Can it really be well with those who do not know God? He goes on to say, we can see their outward displays of gladness, but do we understand their inward pains? Even in laughter, their hearts ache, and the end of their joy is grief. Silk curtains and fine clothes cannot bring happiness to those whose bodies are plagued by sin. Sin is their plague, no matter their happiness. Brothers and sisters, it is foolishness to envy the wicked, thinking that they are better off in their rebellion to God than the one who has little, but yet has much in everlasting communion with God. Do we envy the one who sits on death row and for his final meal eats the, the finest of food and drinks the finest of drink? Do we envy that man? No, because tomorrow he dies. He's executed. Will we envy the one who on death row if he was told, told, go, take all this money, live life to the fullest in two years, we're killing you? No, not a chance. Not a chance. We see the wealth of the wicked, the seeming prosperity of them, but they are not satisfied, though they believe they are. And again, Charnock again, I recommend his book, Divine Providence. Excellent. If you are suffering, he says, for the wicked, there is an oozing sore under a purple robe, and it's a fatal wound. It's a fatal sore. The true condition of the wicked is that their bodies are plagued by sin, and unless they have a mediator to stand between God and them, they will perish under the just wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, their lives may seem better, but it's not better than what we have as those who belong to God. It's not better. It's not. So why didn't Asaph finally fall? Right? He slipped, but he didn't fall. He tells us in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Uh, This is beautiful imagery, and it uh, reminds me of all the children that we have in this church. Uh, running around and uh, between the pews after service. Um, this, came, this thought came to me a few weeks ago as I noticed um, Nigel walking with Tobias. And uh, Tobias was head down the stairs, and what did Nigel do? He grabbed him by his hand, and he walked him down the steps to make sure that he would not fall. 
And Nigel even took him to the steps that might seem dangerous to Tobias, but Nigel wouldn't let go. He wouldn't let his child be harmed. Though Tobias may be uncertain of the future, Nigel would not let him let harm come upon him. And this is like our Heavenly Father and what he does for us as his children. He leads us by his right hand and he carries us through the places that he brings us to. And he leads us by the counsel of his word and by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Asa found the counsel of God's word in the sanctuary of God, and this is what we find when we come here together. When we come together in the church service, we take hold of the means of grace, and we hear the word preached, prayed, sung, and seen the sacraments, and the Holy Spirit works by them when received by faith to the preservation and improvement of our souls. And it is here when we come together that our hearts and minds are reoriented each and every Lord's Day to think rightly about God to think rightly about our sinful condition, to think of the remedy for our sin, who is Christ, and of eternity, and to rejoice in our Savior. And we need this. We need this lest we fall as we finally fall away in pursuing the lives of those who hate God being tempted to sin. Brothers and sisters, we are not any better (coughs) than the wicked. And the only reason why we are here today is because God is holding you by his right hand. I've considered this as we've, as we've thought of the, the people who have um, been excommunicated from this church. Are you any better than them? Do you sin any differently than them? No. You probably sin in very similar ways. The only difference is God has renewed your heart and given you the grace of repentance, and he keeps you and he holds you here. Those who have been excommunicated, he's not holding by the right hand. But he's holding you, Christian, and he loves you and cares for you, even if it seems life is very difficult. Brief thoughts for the end of this sermon. If you're unbelieving, or I don't know the hearts of all the people here. I, I can't read hearts. I believe we're all Christians, but I do not know. Maybe you do not believe that God will judge you because up to this point in your life has been easy and God is not judge you finally for your sins he still gives you breath and you breathe but you mistake his patience and for and long suffering with people for weakness you might wrongly believe that he is not able to punish you for your sins or he would have already or maybe he'll be lenient with you because he's been lenient with you thus far Well, brothers and sisters, we rely on the patience of God because if he's not patient, everyone dies now. The existence of the world depends on God's patience and forbearance with people. Our very tomorrow depends on the patience of God. But we must not assume that the Lord will give to each of us tomorrow. God's patience is meant to bring us to repentance not for us to test God's justice and righteousness. And so if you are like the prospering wicked, holding a measure of power that makes you comfortable and wealth and an easy life, what good will those those things do for you when you stand before God? Will you bribe God with them? Does he need those things? You can hold everything you could ever desire in your hands, but if you do not hold the nail-scarred hands of the Savior by faith, You will perish in your sin. And if you come to God, you must come the way he commands. You cannot come however it pleases you. Our Lord tells us that all who come to the Father must come through him, Jesus Christ. And so if there are any unbelieving, would you repent and turn from your sin and find something better than the vanity of the world? And for the believing, I don't want to take away from any of the difficulties you may be enduring in this life. The hard providences of God are truly hard, and they are called hard for a reason. And Asaph wasn't lying when he said that he envied the wicked, right? He really did. But we must remember that the wicked are being fattened for the day of slaughter, and all that they have will be used against them in the judgment of God. They are being raised up so God might display his righteous wrath. But for the elect who are pure of heart, you will not be slaughtered. Your hardship is meant to sanctify you and purify you. 
And the Lord, and in sending hardships, he is weaning us from the comforts of this world so we grow in our delight of him who saved us. So if you're enduring life's difficulties, remember that God loves you. That's a simple truth, but it's a beautiful truth that God loves you. He's holding you by his right hand. And it will do you no good to turn from God to pursue the things of this world. We must be careful to not assume that hardships mean that God has abandoned us. Just because life is hard does not mean God has abandoned us. Did God hate his son, who was the man of sorrows? No. Did God hate the apostles as they were martyred? No. He didn't. Just because you're enduring difficulty does not mean God hates you. He loves you. And if you have faith, if you believe in Christ, whether you feel it, believe it. What God has said is true. He loves his saints and he loves his people. So if you're like Asaph this morning, maybe you're like Asaph. He went to the temple of God, the sanctuary. He wasn't expecting anything. Maybe he wasn't expecting just religious practices. Maybe he just regular, regular day before the temple. Um, but his life was changed. And maybe this morning, if that's you, if you've come and you've been tempted to envy the wicked, may the Lord use this sermon and his word to preserve your soul, that we all might think rightly of him, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have shown to us in sending your Son, who is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows seen in the old covenant. We thank you that we have something better. Lord, we ask that you would protect our hearts, protect our souls from desiring the lives of the wicked. We know their lives are not better off. It is not better off to be without the grace and mercy of God. So Lord, we ask that you would accomplish your holy will in each of us, that you would sanctify us, that you would preserve us, and that we might stand as monuments as a testimony to the grace of God to save rebel sinners like ourselves. Protect us from being Pharisees and believing that we are worthy. Protect us from thinking that we are any better than the wicked because we don't behave exactly like they do. But Lord, we deserve damnation apart from Christ. We ask that you would work these things in each of our hearts for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand?